If you guys got your Bibles with you, I invite you to open up Psalms. We're going to start in chapter 102. There's a uh, several bets being placed that we won't get past 102 tonight. <laughs> we have 103 just in case. So let's look at Psalm 102. As we come to Psalm 102, we're coming to the end. Remember, the Psalms are broken into four books. So in book four, um, we're, we're coming toward the end of, of the fourth book of Psalms. And as we look at Psalm 102, it has an interesting uh, a title along with it. It says, A prayer of the afflicted when he is overwhelmed and pours out his complaint before the Lord. So you have this concept in Psalm 102. The, the, whoever wrote Psalm 102 probably uh, was writing during... Uh, um, the, uh, the time when the children of Israel are, are in uh, Babylon, in captivity. And uh, as they are there in Babylon, we'll see in a moment as we work our way through this psalm, that the time is just about completed for the time they're supposed to be in Babylon. And the Lord had told through Jeremiah the prophet that uh, the children of Israel were going into bondage. There are several reasons behind their bondage. One of them was idolatry. They were constantly stuck in idolatry where they were uh, struggling with uh, serving uh, other gods, spending uh, time distracted um, and applying, bringing other gods into worship of Yahweh. So as they're doing that, the Lord says he's going to bring judgment. And the timing of the judgment, he said, was going to be 70 years. They were going to do 70 years. And the reason they were going to do 70 years, uh, the Lord said through the prophets, was because they had never kept the Sabbath year. The land had never got her rest. So remember the children of Israel back when God, God institutes the Sabbath with the nation of Israel. It is a covenant between he and they. And he says to them, I'm going to give you on the sixth day, you'll get everything you need. Remember when the children of Israel are in the wilderness? Sixth day, you'll get double. So don't go gather on the seventh day, right? So the same deal was made. Uh, sometimes I, I, I sometimes find it somewhat humorous because there are still people today who, who are pretty um, adamant about uh, keeping the Sabbath, but they only want to keep the weekly Sabbath. They don't want to keep the yearly Sabbath. Every six years, seventh year, land rests. Don't plant. Don't reap. Don't harvest. The land was to get a year's rest. For 490 years, the children of Israel never gave the land its Sabbath rest. And so the Lord said, when you go into captivity, because of your idolatry and these spiritual issues that are going on, you're going to stay in captivity, exiled in Babylon for 70 years. God said the land gets its rest. So the land got its rest, right? Nobody plowed, nobody planted for 70 years while the children of Israel were exiled in Babylon. But as the children of Israel, they struggled a lot with the concept because here they are, God's people, and and they are going into exile, and the people are going into exile, they're, they're not good people. It was a good time for them to learn nobody is. Right? You know what it says? 
in Romans. There is none good, no, not one. That's like a triple negative. That's extra special, sure. Nobody's good. Nobody's good. I I got a space out in front of the church. I'm trying to uh, to work out getting a, um, maybe some some. Uh, I like rusty metal. If you walk around the church, you'll see rusty metal all over the place. Rusty metal crosses, rusty metal things. Uh, I don't know why, but I would like to have out there outside the door building up the broken, because really, this is a church for the broke. If you're not broke, you're probably not going to like it here. But the good news is, uh, if you read your Bible, you'll know we're all broke. And it's it's through Christ that we're made whole. So during their captivity, they're learning that. Oh, these guys are horrible. They, they have all this idolatry. Well, God cures their idolatry while they're there. But it's hard. Now, as the children of Israel are leaving, I just want to kind of paint the backdrop for you. For Psalm 102, as the children of Israel are leaving, remember families are split up, they're all divided, they're going into captivity. That's when Jeremiah the prophet brings Jeremiah 29, 11. 29, 10. I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord. Thoughts of good and not of evil to give you a future and a hope. God says through the prophet, go, live. You can spend all your time thinking about all the stuff you lost. You ever have those times in life where you, you come kind of to a crossroad and it's like, well, look, I'm here and I can spend all my time looking back at all the stuff I lost in the process of getting to where I am now. But if I, I can't live looking backwards, can I? So what is it that Paul, Paul tells us in, uh, in his epistles? He lays out for us, uh, not that I've already attained or I'm already perfected, but this one thing I do, what? I don't spend my time looking back. I spend my time looking to Christ and moving forward. And so there was, that, there was this point for the children of Israel that God's telling them, look, you got to move forward. You can't do nothing. That's gone. So now move forward. Live, have families, and in 70 years, I'll bring you out. And I'll, let you, I'll put you back in the land. So they're in that captivity. And as they're there, this psalm is penned. And it's penned toward the end of their time there. And there's a lot of things that we can glean from it that hopefully we can, we can kind of pull out of it. It's a great psalm for understanding the, the, the idea of, of how, how do we overcome our circumstances when you know life doesn't happen the way we think maybe it ought to. Or it wasn't part of our plan or how things were, we thought they were going to go together. So verse 1 and 2, we have an introduction to his prayer. And I just, just look at, focus on the things he's looking for from God. Look what he says. Hear my prayer, O Lord. Let my cry come to you. Do not hide your face from me in the day of my trouble. Incline your ear to me in, in the day that I call and answer me speedily. So just think about what is it that he's asking. He's asking God to hear him, right? Hear my prayer. Let my cry come to you, that, that, that God's able to see, that he wouldn't turn his face away. The idea in Scripture when the Bible says, don't turn your face away, when, when the children of Israel or people or mankind is under judgment, the, 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 the uh, figure of speech that is used for that is God has turned his face away. God's face is turned away and now his wrath or his judgment is coming down. So he's saying, look, 
Don't turn your face away. Now, they're in a place where, where they're being uh, judged ultimately for, for some of the things that they'd done in their past. But God's heart toward the people wasn't different. It was still, God still loved them. God still wanted them to have a life, right? God still wanted them to, to, to go on, live, you know. But, but the road led them through the place that they were at. So they needed to. They needed to recognize that it's true. So he's saying, look, don't hide your face. I don't want to be under your wrath. Now, Romans, I just want us to grab this. Romans tells us that our natural state, mankind's natural state, is as a child of disobedience under the wrath of God. Everyone, apart from a relationship with Jesus Christ, is a child of disobedience uh, that is just storing up wrath from God. That Romans 1 tells us that. All mankind, that's where we're at. That's our natural state. But when we have a relationship with the Lord, that relationship is a relationship that is brought about through grace, right? Which means that, that God forgives us and gives us a relationship. Now, for you and I, that relationship is wrought through Jesus Christ. The Old Testament, that relationship was wrought through their obedience to his law. Now, what does that mean? It, nobody really obeyed the law, but what was part of the law? What was part of the law that pointed to Christ? Part of the law that pointed to Christ was the concept of a sacrificial system that said, I need to, to trust in the sacrifice, which pointed to a Lamb of God that would take away the sin of the world that hadn't come yet. So in that we move, we find ourselves not under the wrath of God, but under God's grace. Not because of something that we did, not because we did something, simply that we trusted that God would do what he said he would do. That God, this is how God is, is going to respond to us. So he's saying, look, I don't want your face to be away. I don't want to be in a position where I'm under your wrath, even though I'm going through consequences of the choices of our nation. That, that's, aren't you guys all going through that right now? Aren't we as a people going through consequences of our nation? Maybe we didn't have anything directly to do with it, but trust me, we're there. <laughs> that's where we find ourselves. So he's saying, look, I don't want to be in a place under your wrath personally. I want to be in a place where your face is toward me. Where your face is toward me. I, I, I want you to have that rightful place. Uh, he, he wants his ear inclined toward him. And he wants an answer. Does anybody ever pray that they don't want an answer? Well, Lord, I'm coming to you with this prayer, but I don't really want... I don't, if you don't have time to answer me, it's okay. Nobody says that, right? So we go before the Lord and we say, Lord, answer. Just, just give me an answer. Show me you know, your direction or what you have for me. So this is the beginning of his of his prayer to the Lord. And so it really, from here on, it's going to divide into three parts. Okay, the first part was what we would call his complaint or his problem. And his problem basically is simply this. Life is constantly changing. It's in a transitory state. And he's going to describe that with a lot of metaphor. And then he's going to move from that. Okay, life is transitory. There's lots of changes, hardship, things going on. Then he's going to start to focus on the unchanging promises of God. That God's promises are solid, we can trust in. And then from the unchanging promises, he's going to move to the unchanging God. That God doesn't change. And those are the things that are going to give him hope through his prayer. So let's look how he describes first the 
the, the, the transitory part of life. Look, for my days are consumed like smoke. My bones are burned like a hearth. My heart is stricken and withered like glass. So we have all this concept laid out here that my life is like smoke. It's fading away. It's, it's, you can see it, but it's, it's, it's fading away. And then he also says, my bones, are, it's like they're on fire. They're, they're in the embers. And my heart is broken like withered grass. How does grass get withered? It's, it's dried up from the heat. Or it's been, the picture actually is, is grass that's been cut. The sickle has gone through, cut the grass. What happens to grass? It just starts to shrivel up and die. So my heart's like cut grass. My bones are like fire. And my life is like smoke. My life is like smoke. So as he's putting all these things together, look, my, my life, there's all these changes and hardships and difficulties in my life. It's what my life looks like. It's what my, my life is. He, he has physical attributes that he talks about. He says, he, he talks about his bones, his heart. In another verse, uh, in verse 5, he's going to talk about his skin. You know, so he says there's, there's this physical reality, but then there's also this, this uh, shadow or spiritual part. He describes like his life is like a shadow. It continues to get darker. Or his life is like smoke that's, that's fading away and, and there's no substance to it. So as he's describing, he has, he has all of these issues that he's laying out. My bones are burning like my, maybe his, his body's hurting. Maybe he's, he's going through such, uh, um, an idea of, of trauma as he's there in exile, longing to be somewhere else. He feels like he's on fire. And then at the end of verse four, look, he starts to lose the simple joys of life. Look, I'm so stressed out about what I'm going through. I just forget to eat. I forgot to eat. I was spending all this time worrying. He tells us why in verse 5. Because of the sound of my groaning. Because of all this hardship. All these things that I'm struggling with. <clears throat> my bones cling to my skin. So he's, his picture is like I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm just a... I'm just a skeleton. Now, as he's describing all of these things about his life, that, that there's all these changes, everything's different, right? Smoke's not like fire, it may come from fire. Shadow certainly doesn't. Uh, withered grass. He's just describing, giving all these metaphors to the struggles of his life. My life is a big struggle. It's hard. Life is hard. Changes come. Things happen. I'm sure the guy who wrote this psalm when he was a child, probably when, when the exile began, because if he's been there almost 70 years, then he'd be an older guy now. And his whole life has been spent in that place. He's going he's gonna to probably live there and die there. It'll be his kids that get to go back to the land. But as he's describing his life, he wouldn't have chose that. That wouldn't have been the way he chose. And as a child, how much authority did he have and what the nation was doing that led them to that place? But you see, the reality is, God has been in control all along. If we want to make God laugh, what should we do? Just make plans. Just make plans. What is it James tells us? James tells us to do what? He says... We should say, 
if the Lord wills, this is what I'm going to do. If the Lord wills, this is where I'm going to be. Because God's got a program going on. And it's, it's a, it may be hard, but it's good. God knows what he's doing. And we can, even in exile, even in slavery, even in the hardship of life, still find peace with him. We can still live a good life. We can still live a peaceful life. We can still have all those things that we think can only come as a result of our plans. But they, they hinge for us on understanding the other things that he's going to move to. So not only is he describing his life all these ways, all the way through verse 11, he's talking about the, the way his life is, is, is a mess. In verse 6, he says, I'm like a pelican of the wilderness. Does everybody's Bible say pelican? Y'all got pelican? Somebody ought to have owl. Anybody got something beside owl or pelican? You got owl and pelican? Oh, you got special Bible. Yes. So here's what it is. The word pelican really in the Hebrew basically is an unclean bird. And it can be any unclean bird. It can be an owl. It can be a pelican. It can be a raven. It's an unclean bird. So... So if it makes sense if we if we understand that in verse 6. So if I say, I'm like an unclean bird in the wilderness. I'm like an owl of the desert. I lie awake. Or like a sparrow alone on the housetop. What's his point? Well, sleep has fled. I, I can't sleep because of, of my worries. And I'm alone. I'm alone. Like a like an owl in the, in the middle of the desert. Sitting on some hilltop by itself. I, I, I'm alone. I feel lonely. Every one of those expressions in verse 6 and 7 are expressions of loneliness. So, so think about what he's talking about. My heart's broken. My bones are on fire. My, my life is like smoke. I feel lonely. I'm alone. I mean, really, if we work our way through the, the first 11 verses of, of this psalm, there's, there's, a number of different places and at different times where we've been able to relate. Maybe we can relate to all of them at the same time. But this is what's on this guy's heart. And I always tell people when, when you're struggling with things, I think it's good to learn to write psalms. So what's he do his first 11 verses? He lays out his complaint, his pain, his hurt, his frustration, his struggle. He lays it all out. Then what's he do? He puts his eyes to the word of God and the promises of God. And then what's he do? He puts his eyes to who God is. And in the end, that's what brings him his comfort through working through his prayer. Working through what's going on. I'm lonely. My heart's broken. I'm struggling. Verse 8. My enemies reproach me all day long. Those who deride me swear an oath against me. So basically, what's he saying? My enemies all call me forsaken. My enemies say I'm forsaken. God's not with me anymore. That you're not here. I'm a byword. I'm, I'm an example of what they say to their children. Well, you know what? You don't want to grow up like this guy. Whatever you do, don't grow up like Kim. Because look what, look what happened to them. So really, the nation of Israel during the exile become that. They become that to their enemies. The Babylonians would tell their kids, Look, you don't want to be like Israel. Look what happened to them. They're our slaves now. So, so you don't want to live a life like that. So he's saying, look, even my enemies, they call me forsaken. That God's not with us anymore. That God's not here. That God doesn't, doesn't have a plan for us. 
In verse 9, he finally is able to eat. Look what it says. For I have eaten ashes like bread. So I'm eating bread and it tastes like ash. Sound like a great meal? There is a... <laughs> I remember when I had to carry one of them things around. It's, don't be sorry, it's okay. She got. We had to do an egg for a long time. Did you guys ever have to do that? When I was a kid, we had to take an egg to teach us to teach us how to be parents. And then they got smarter and got like dolls that cry and oh, crazy. So now you know why you don't have a baby yet. <laughs> that that's as far as I'll go with that. Okay. So, so what he's saying is, look, I got, I went, to, I'm eating, but I'm not satisfied in it. It's just like ash. There's a, there's a story. Um, well, it doesn't really matter. Scandinavian tale of uh, <clears throat> a judgment that the Scandinavian gods put on a guy. They turned him into a, a werewolf, so he would never die, but he could never eat. He'd kill a lot of people, and he'd go to eat it, but whatever he ate turned to ash. Ash in his mouth. Uh, it's a, to live out his days in misery, you know, because he can never be sad. He's hungry all the time, but never able to satisfy himself by what he eats. And here's what he's saying. I'm, I've eaten ashes like bread, and my drinks are mingled with weeping. So my, I drink my own tears, and whatever I eat takes like, tastes like ash. So so uh, there's all of this struggle going on in his life. All of these things happening. And then he tells us why. Verse 10, this is important. Why, why are all of these things the way he describes his life? Why is it that this is my life right now? Because of your indignation. Because of your wrath. Now, I don't want us to read that like he's blaming God. Like, God, it's your fault. You, you should be okay with all this stuff but he's saying look i we as a nation find ourselves under the wrath of god this is god's judgment as a nation this is where we are were the children of israel given steps to take if they found themselves in a position where they found themselves under the wrath of god what did he say if my people who are called by my name would do what humble themselves and pray what else are they supposed to do Seek his face, what else? Repent of their wicked ways. And God says, I'll hear you from heaven. I'll hear you. Now, there are times in our life where we find ourselves under the wrath of God. And we may be like them. We find ourselves in a, in a position of, of exile for a time. Consequences to what's gone on in our life. It may last 70 years, but does God's wrath last forever? The Bible tells us while his, his, his wrath would consume us if we were always under his wrath. And there are those who will always be under his wrath who will reject Jesus Christ. But ultimately, his wrath is, is satisfied. So he's saying, look, this is how I feel and this is why we're in this position. This is why we're in a place where we eat ash. This is why we're in a place where our lives are, are unsatisfying because of your indignation and your wrath. For you have lifted me up and cast me away. It's a picture like a tornado. So think about God's judgment came into Israel like a tornado. He picked them all up and threw them into Babylon. So we've been scooped up and, and tossed out. 
because of your indignation, because of your wrath, because of the, of the sin that they chose to live in. And my days, verse 11, the end of his description of his life, my days are like a shadow that lengthens. So what's he saying? It just keeps getting darker. My days keep getting darker and they don't end. They don't end. There's, it just keeps going on and I wither away like the grass. I'm wasting away. So I just want you to picture. Here's the writer. A child, when they go into captivity, an old man now coming toward the end. And that's going to play into his desire, what he wants to see God do, because he spent all his life there, and he feels like his life's going to end there without seeing the fulfillment of God's promise in the end of the 70 years, coming back into the land. But something happens in verse 12. When we look at verse 12, it starts with a, with a phrase, but. But means strong contrast, radical change, Okay, my life is a mess and all these things are going on. But, you, O Lord, shall endure forever. My life is going through all these changes and all these struggles. My bones on fire, my heart's breaking, my life like smoke. I'm eating and not satisfied. You know, all these different ways, the descriptions about how he is, how his life is, is chaos. But he says, but you, God, you're not chaos. You're eternal. You're, the way the Bible describes him, you're the rock. Why does the Bible describe God as the rock? It doesn't change. It doesn't move. God's ways were God's ways when they were disobeying him. God's ways are still God's ways later on if they want to come back. God's ways don't change. He doesn't, it's not this way, then that way, then this way, then that way. Your sins always had to be purged with blood. It was either the animals or it's the blood of Jesus Christ. But they always had to be purged. There always had to be an atonement. There always had to be... God hasn't changed and His promises hadn't either. Look what He says. So you're eternal. You're, you're not changing. There's no changing your eternal, and the remembrance of your name to all generations. So people will always know the name Yahweh. Always. His name has always been, and it will always go to all generations. And then here's the promise. The unchanging promise that this now old man is hanging on to. You will arise and have mercy on Zion for the time to favor her. Yes, look at this phrase. The set time has come. So what's he saying? He's saying, look, your word, you promised that you'd take us back and that the land would be rebuilt. Was it? Absolutely. Two books of the Bible focus on that event. Ezra and Nehemiah uh, lay out for us the return of the exiles, the rebuilding of the nation, the building of the temple that one day Jesus would walk into. That is going to be remodeled by Herod the Great, but initially built by, by Nehemiah, uh, Ezra and Nehemiah and their crew. As they come out, so, so the exiles happen. So what's this guy saying? Lord, look, my life is a mess, and it's all this chaos and crazy things going on in my life. But you don't change. You're solid, and your promise is that we're going to go back. And the set time has come. What was the set time? Seventy years. Seventy years. The set time. There's a point. There's a time. There, this... This exile had an end date. 
and the end date had has come. The end date has come. The end of the years of the exile. And he describes, and remember when he talked about Zion, the Bible talks about Zion. It's just talking about Jerusalem. Mount Zion is the way it describes the same mount, Mount Moriah, uh, the, mount, uh, the side of the mount upon which Jerusalem is built, and uh, ultimately the Temple Mount sits. So, it says, Your servants take pleasure in her stones and show favor to her dust. He's saying, we as your people, the people who, who want to follow you, Yahweh, we love the stones, we even love the dirt of Zion, of Jerusalem. They want to go back. They want to see that raised up again. Why is it that he wants to see that? Why is it that he's holding fast to the promise of God? Look what he says in verse 15. He tells us why. So the nations shall fear the name of the Lord, and all the kings of the earth your glory. Why are the nations going to fear the Lord? Capital L or why are they going to feel why are they going to fear the name of Yahweh, the becoming one? Because he took his children, he disciplined them, he took them into exile. When everybody said, God's done with you and there's no hope anymore, God's going to bring them back and rebuild. And build the city back up and say, look, that's what I do. All throughout the history of the nation of Israel and ultimately the history of God from Genesis to Revelation, what's God doing? Building up the broken. Pointing out their sin and their failure to a point where the people realize, yeah, look, this is what my life is like without you. But I hold fast to your unchanging promises. Because God's promises are solid and we can hold to them. So I hold fast to your promise that you're going to bring us back into the land again. And the people will fear your name because they're going to know we can't do it. You tell me how slaves say, said save themselves. How'd that happen? So, so slaves go to the king of the land and say, hey, how about you let us go back into the land? Sure, that happens all, every day, right? All the time? Well, just, just bring it to a common day. You have creditors you owe money to. You just call them up and say, you know, I'd just like to start over. Can I get a start over? Let's just erase the date and take me back to where we started. Sure, yeah, that'd be fine. But ultimately, that's what God's going to do. God even tells them how he's going to do it. Yeah, God says he's going to raise up a guy. He's going he's gonna to raise up Cyrus. He's going to put it in the heart of Artaxerxes. He's going to, through Nehemiah's brother, speak to Nehemiah. Nehemiah's going to go to the king. He's a cupbearer of the king. And he's going to say, look, I want to go back and, and take people back to the land. And the king's going to say, Artaxerxes, you know, the guy, Thermopylae, all that stuff that happened historically. He's going to go to that guy and he's going to say, yeah, you know what? Go ahead. Go ahead and go. And Nehemiah is going to spend the next 20 years of his life going, rebuilding Jerusalem, the temple, getting all that set. And after 20 years, he's going to go back, serve the king, spend the rest of his days not in the land that he just went to go build. He's going to do all that because God said, before they went, in 70 years, I'm going to take you out. And I'm going to establish you again. And... You're going to build Jerusalem. And you're going to build the temple 
that the prophets had already said one day God would visit. Malachi. God's going to visit that. He's going to come into the temple. One day, he's going to come in. God's going to enter into the temple. You'll know it's him because he's going to clean house. Remind you of anybody? That temple being built and put together. So, he's saying, look, this is for the fear of the nation. So the Gentiles, so they'll know that you're God because we couldn't do it ourselves. Look at verse 16. For the Lord shall build up Zion. Who does the work? God, who builds you up? Can you do it yourself? Man, a lot of people make a lot of money selling self-help books. I figured if that worked, they'd only need to write one. Get this self-help book. Read that self-help book, you'll help yourself. And everything will be okay. But in reality, are we able to cleanse ourselves, change ourselves, make ourselves into what we need to be? I mean, we need the Lord. Who builds us up? God does. God does. Who draws near to the brokenhearted? God does. Who comes near to those who have a contrite spirit? That means a repentful heart, willing to turn from their sin. Who draws close to them? God does. God does. For what purpose? To establish us. To build us up. It's the Lord is going to build Zion. God's going to do the work. He's saying, He shall appear in His glory. He shall regard the prayer of the destitute and shall not despise their prayer. He says, God's, God's going to hear our prayer and He's going to come. God's going to hear our prayer and He's going to come. And He did, both in the to return the exiles to land and in Jesus Christ to bring about the perfect work of salvation for all. To provide that opportunity. He's going to come in His glory. He will listen to the prayer of the poor. He won't despise their prayer. Then in verse 18, look what it says. And this will be written for the generation to come, that a people yet to be created may praise the Lord. That a people yet to be created. Not a people already put together here. But one day there's going to be another people. They're going, to, they're going to read about this. They're going to read about this. People, he's already talking about you in Psalm 102. People yet to be created. Church wasn't put together yet. But now there's neither Gentile or Jew, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, man, woman. We're all one in Christ. We're all under another name now. We're under church. A new group created through the blood of Jesus Christ, right? And so out of that new group that's being created, they're going to sing a song. They're going to sing a song too. Really? They're going to sing a song? Yeah, look, you can read it. Go to Revelation chapter 15. We'll read the song that, they're, that, <clears throat> that we're going to be able to sing together. Going to be able to sing it together with the Old Testament saints. Yeah? No, really, look. Revelation 15 verse 3. It says, and they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God. So you have the song of Moses. We, we read about that in Exodus. It's also in Psalms. The, it's, a, it's a psalm that was sung by the children of Israel. They sing the song of Moses, the servant of God. What's the other one? And the song of the Lamb. Oh. And this is the song. The song of redemption. 
Great and marvelous are your works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the saints. Who shall not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy, for all nations shall come and worship before you. For your judgments have been manifest. Your judgments have been seen. They see Him. What's He saying back here? He says, It will be written for the generation to come that a people yet to be created may praise God. Praising God for the works that He has done. For He looked down from the height of His sanctuary. From heaven the Lord viewed the earth. For what purpose? Three things. Look at it. To hear, to release, to declare. To hear, to release, to declare. To hear the groaning of the prisoner. To hear the groaning of the prisoner. Now, to what prison are they bound? They're, They're bound to sin. All man is in bondage to sin, aren't they? Doesn't the Bible describe that again in Romans? Tell us that we're all in bondage to sin. To release those appointed to death. What are the wages of sin? How many times? All the time. So how is it that those who are under condemnation, under the wrath of God, under that place, how are they going to be released? Well, the Bible is very clear. It says, He looked down from the height of His sanctuary. From heaven the Lord viewed the earth, and He heard the groaning, and He came to release those appointed to death. For how? To declare the name of the Lord in Zion. The name of the Lord Yahweh, Yahweh, I'm the becoming one. I am everything you need to declare the name of the Lord in Zion. Ultimately, we see the name of the Lord declared in Zion through Jesus Christ. Yeshua, God, is salvation. He has heard your cry and He has come to release you. What is the last enemy that's going to be put down? The last enemy is death. The last enemy to be defeated is death. Jesus, sit here until I make your enemies your footstool. And the last enemy to be defeated will be death. Death set aside. So here he's saying, look, they're going to release those appointed to death and to declare the name of the Lord. And his praise in Jerusalem. Listen, verse 22. When the peoples are gathered together and the kingdoms to serve the Lord. And the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God. So he's looking far beyond just his own little exile, right? Here's my life, but I know the promises of God. We're going to be back in the land. And God's going to come, and he hears our cry, and he's going to deliver us who are appointed unto death. And he's going to, we're going to be able to praise him, and there's going to be a kingdom, and all the nations are going to come together to worship God in, in his kingdom. Now, a little while ago, he was just talking about how hard his life was. Remember? But then he allowed his eyes to drift from himself to the promises of God that don't change. Is there going to be a kingdom? Absolutely, there's going to be a kingdom. Did Jesus Christ hear our cry? Does he come to set us free? Absolutely, he comes to declare the name of God in Zion, to declare the glory of God. Absolutely, he's here. He's He's here to do it. He's here to lay it all out. But then after verse 22, 
he turns his focus not just to the promises of God and their solid ground that they stand on, but now he turns his eyes to the unchanging nature of God. God doesn't change. Same yesterday, today, forever. God doesn't change. So look what he says in verse 23. He weakened my strength in the way. He shortened my days. Now, what? What's he saying? Well, this is, remember I told you, it's an old guy. He was a kid. 70 years have passed. He's an old guy. And he's saying, look, I'm coming to the end of my life. I'm coming to the end of my days. I can't run around like a spring chicken anymore. I can't do, <laughs> I can't do all the things I used to be able to do. So listen to his, his prayer in verse 24. So I said, oh my God, do not take me away in the midst of my days. For your years are throughout all generations. He said, Don't take me away. I want to see it. That's his prayer. Look, my life is hard and all this garbage is going on, but your promise is solid and I know you're going to take us out and I want to see it. I want to live to see it. To see it. Maybe he never makes a trip, but he wants to live to see the end of the exile. He says, my days are going to end, but your years, they never end. Now I want to see your redemption. Man, that one great story from Genesis to Revelation, God's redemption of man. You can find every type of knucklehead in the Bible. Spend a little time looking as heroes and zeros all the way through, right? But what's the one thing that's threaded all the way through? Watch God redeem men. Only God can redeem Samson. Only God can use some of the people he used. Only God would, would find Gideon hiding in a hole and call him Almighty Man of Valor, right? Because God sees what you can be in a life surrendered to him. And so, he's, look, I want to see the redemption. I want to see these things take place. And now, watch, he's going to turn. He's saying, my days are going to end, but your days are without number. So, you're eternal. God is eternal. No beginning, no end. He just is. That's why in Exodus, when Moses said, tell me who I should tell the people, the children of Israel has sent me, God says, I am. Pure existence. I am. Not I was, not I will be, I am. I am eternal. I am always. I'm everything you need. I am here. That's why all through Isaiah, over and over and over again, describing Yahweh, he says, I am Yahweh. I am He. That is carried over to the Gospel of John when Jesus comes on the scene and He says, I am. In John 8, 24, He says, Unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. And there are still crazy people out there that think He was saying, Unless you believe I exist. So really all i got to do is believe Jesus exists and I'm saved. Yeah, sorry. Oh no, none of them will go for that. Neither do they often want to go for the fact of what he's declaring himself to be. The ego I me. I am. Jesus said, I am eternal God. If you don't have the right Jesus, you don't have salvation. You get that? Just because you name him the same name, but you describe him some other way. He's a created being. If your Jesus is a created being, that's not the Jesus of the Bible. 
The Jesus of the Bible is eternal. In the beginning was the Word. That's Jesus. The Word was with God. That means face to face. So Jesus the Word was face to face with God the Father. Way back in the beginning. And the Word was God. Same essence. Same character. One God. Eternally existent. Three persons. Hey. That's what the Bible teaches. That's what it lays out. That's how it is. I'm sorry I, we can't wrap our heads around it. But it's not a requirement. The requirement is not for you to be able to understand how that works. It's just what it says. Jesus, I am the great I am. He's eternal. He's, he is eternal. Now look what he says next. Of old, you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. So who's he talking about? Yahweh, right? Well, I would say definitely he's talking about God the Father, right? God the Father. Of old, you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. You are the creator. God, you created. In the beginning, God, one being, created the heavens and the earth. Whatever you do, don't look in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 10. Oh, you know we're going to go there now, don't you? you got to come. Might as well take the journey along with me. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 10. Hebrews chapter 1, probably one of the, one of, other than the prologue of John, one of the greatest uh, sections of Scripture that describe the, the deity and the majesty of Jesus Christ. So just back up Hebrews 1, verse 8. I just want you to know who he's talking to. In Hebrews 1, verse 8, it says, But to the Son, he says. Everybody see that? But to the Son, he says. So God speaking, God the Father speaking, says, But to the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Just so you know, God the Father just called the Son God. But anyways, that's a side point, because that's not verse 10. Remember verse 10? We just read about how God the Father is the creator of the universe. Verse 10 says, and, so he just said to the Son one thing, and, he's still speaking to the Son, you, Lord, capital L-O-R-D, God says to the Son, Jesus Christ, and he calls him Yahweh, capital L-O-R-D. You, God is speaking, the Father to the Son, and he calls him Yahweh, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. So who did God the Father say was there at creation? God the Son. God the Son. That's who Jesus is. Well, what's he saying? You're eternal. You're the creator. Look at verse 26 of Psalm 102. They will perish but you will endure, again, the eternality of God. They all grow old like a garment, like a cloak. You will change them, and they will be changed. What's he saying? Life changes. The world changes. Our existence changes. Constant changes. Things happening. Things never stay the same. They always change. But what doesn't change? God doesn't change. What about God's promises? God's promises don't change 
If he said it, it's written in stone. That's how it's going to be. That's how it's going to happen. Look at verse 27. Everything changes, but you are the same. God doesn't change. And your years will have no end. The children of your servants will continue, and their descendants will be established before you. So the old man wants to see the redemption of man. What's he say? At the end, he's saying, look, the children are going. And those children, they're going to continue, and the nation's going to keep going. And the nation's going to keep going all the way to 70 A.D. And then at 70 A.D., you see the judgment of God once again falling the nation of Israel. And you see the nation of Israel destroyed and the temple wiped out. But was God done with Israel? But a lot of people said He was. God's done. Oh, He turned His back on them. Those guys, God... But does God have promises to the nation of Israel still? Are God's promises unchanging? How do I know that for sure? Nation of Israel is how I know. Because 1948, out of nowhere, after 2,000 years, they came back. They're back in a land. That's crazy. Against all odds. Why? How did it happen? Because they were so smart? Do you ever think about how they came into that in 1948? You got all the concentration camps emptying in Nazi Germany and sending those, those concentration guys over to Israel. And they held the nation together against all attacks. That doesn't seem a little weird to you? You've seen pictures of the concentration camps, right? They weren't coming out strapping healthy, strong guys, right? How to get put together. Same way God did it then. God built it. God brought it back. Does that mean everything Israel does is right? No. Has everything Israel ever done been right? No. Are they broke just like everybody else? Yes. Yeah. That's still all true. But I believe God still has a plan and a purpose for Israel. You read about it in Romans 9, 10, and 11. There's still a purpose. There's still a plan. Because God's promises don't change. Think about some of God's promises. Here's a good one to think about. Whosoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Is that a promise? Is that ever going to change? Whosoever calls. Look, those are things we can hang our hat on and hold on to. So we look at it. How is it that this, this, this older fella who had seen all this hurt and all this exile, how does he turn around his psalm? He looks at the unfailing promises of God and the unchanging nature of God, and he says, the kids are going to see it all. I want to see it, but the kids are going to see it. And that brings this psalm through. And it lays out for us a pattern how we deal when our lives are sideways. Remember the unchanging promises of God. God doesn't change. Our lives, crazy. God, solid. Amen? Why don't you stand with me? Let's pray.